Good morning, and welcome to the Sunday stream at Flat Creek Baptist Church. We are so thankful that you've joined us today, whether you're watching online or you are joining us on Glory FM 97.5. We are grateful for you being here today, and we look forward to worshiping alongside of you this morning. God bless you, and enjoy the stream. Thank you. 
We are so thankful that you are joining us today here at Flat Creek Baptist Church. And that song that we just sang, it spoke of us being the tabernacle of the Most High God. And as I told the 830 service, if there's a word that kind of summarizes our day today, uh, kind of a, a focus, it would be the word holiness. And it's kind of a, a, a lost word in the church today uh, that we are to be holy as he is holy. And so we want to begin our service today in a very unique way. We want to begin our service today in coming together to the Lord's Supper table to observe the Lord's Supper together. So we're going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes at this time. And the Bible tells us to be sure that we take of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And so we're going to give you just a few moments here to pray to the Lord God uh, just for a purification of your heart, repentance, that he might cleanse you and prepare your heart to receive the Lord's Supper this morning. Not sure what that was, but we can recognize it. <clears throat> but in your heart right now, would you just pray? And as you seek the face of the Lord, our deacons are going to come uh, by each aisle and they're going to begin to hand out the elements of the Lord's Supper. We just ask you in this moment, just to let this be a time of worship and prayer as you prepare your heart to receive uh, this meal of the Lord. Yeah. You guys can come.
you're here today and a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we invite you to partake in the Lord's Supper with us today. Uh, these cups you have, there's a top and a bottom. If you will take off the cover from the bottom and you can access uh, your wafer there. <clears throat> and the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus and the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks. Let's thank God for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Father, we love you. And we are so thankful today for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for us. We're so thankful that on Calvary's cross, you suffered and you died in our place, that we might be reconciled to God and have the hope of eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for willingly sacrificing yourself on our behalf. The Bible says when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, the Bible says he also took the cup after supper. Let's take a moment, let's pray and give thanks for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that the Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And we're so thankful for the precious, perfect blood of the Lamb that was slain on our behalf. And we're so thankful that the blood of Jesus has been applied to our lives and our sins have been covered. Our lawless deeds have been forgotten. And we echo Paul's words in Romans chapter 4 and we say how blessed is this man who has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, in the same way he took the cup, also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we give you all the glory, all the praise, and all the honor. And we thank you, God, for this opportunity to come to the Lord's Supper table together and to celebrate and to commemorate the moment that you laid down your life for us. And we realize today that there might be somebody in the room that does not know you as their Savior. But maybe today would be the day that they finally say yes to you. Maybe today would be the day of salvation. There's always room at the table for one more. Whosoever believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. That's the message. And so, God, we pray that you would call all people to yourself. We love you, Lord and say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, it is so good to have you here today, and we are so thankful if you are visiting with us at Flat Creek today. In the back of your pews, you're going to find a green connections card. If you could fill that out for us, and on your way out the double doors today, you're going to see a connections desk, and if you could turn that in for us, we have a gift for you. It's a, a way to commemorate you being here. It's also our way to connect with you during the week. We're going to continue our time of worship at this time with a time of fellowship. Uh, we want you to stand to your feet, and as you stand to your feet, I want to introduce you to Justin and Shannon Caffey. Y'all give Justin and Shannon a big hand.
Justin and Shannon during our Sunday school hour were voted 100% unanimous for them to become our new youth minister. And so we are so thankful to have Justin and Shannon. As we fellowship together today, y'all come and shake their hands and tell them how glad you are to have them at Flat Creek. Brother Caleb.
aren't you excited we get to sing together? Isn't it so great that we all got to wake up this morning and come to church and be with our church family? Let's continue worshiping and let's strive for holiness this morning as we sing this next song, As the Deer. shared this in the early service you know we have a, a kind of a friend of flat creek in our area coach hale always talks about making the wake-up list and he would put it in perspective that if you woke up this morning god has a purpose for you today uh, we're gathered together to worship the purpose might simply be just to humble yourself and come to church and worship with your church family this morning how sweet it is we get to do this so freely and we get to just sing at the top of our lungs we're going to do one more song before pastor zach comes uh stephen's going to lead us off actually but the theme of the message as pastor zach said is holiness striving for that intimate knowledge of the lord and what he's done for you and trying to be more like him every day it should be the cry of your soul every morning when you wake up god you give me a purpose today I want to be more holy, more like you. Y'all sing with us.
thousand times I've failed, still your mercy remains. Should I stumble again, I'm caught in your grace. Everlasting, your light will shine when all else fades. the prayer of your heart this morning. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Amen. Let's give the Lord a big hand today. Thank you so much, Caleb and praise team and choir. We'd like to dismiss all the children kindergarten through fifth grade who have pre-registered for Children's Church, Mr. James 
It's going to meet you right there behind the piano. Go ahead and make your way that direction. Love all those children. If you'll open your Bibles today to the book of Romans, book of Romans chapter 7. As those kids run out, it reminds me of those little boy who one time got in the car with his grandma after church and he said, you know, Momo, I think I figured out what I'm going to be when I grow up. And she said, what's that? He said, well, I think I'm going to be a pastor. And she said, well, that's great. What makes you want to be a pastor? He said, well, I figured church would be a lot funner if I could stand up and yell at people than sit there bored the whole time. <laughs> that's not one of our kids. Uh, Romans chapter number 7 uh, we're coming back to our walkthrough of Romans and what a glorious journey it has been as we have been in this book now almost for an entire year. As a matter of fact, next week, beginning of February, will mark one year since we began our journey together. We're halfway there. Uh, but I promise you once we get to Romans 8, we might be there for the next year. Uh, it is such a good chapter of the Bible. But before we can get to Romans 8, we've got to finish Romans 7. Two weeks ago, I brought a message to you entitled, The Monster Within. And that message was all about Paul's battle with sin before salvation. And that covers verse 7 through verse 13 of chapter number 7. But today, I want to bring a message to you entitled, The Monster Still Within. Paul's battle with sin after salvation. And I want you to listen to what he writes in Romans 7, beginning in verse number 14. It's a bit of a tongue twister, so I'm going to read it rather slowly so that you can kind of listen to it all. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil thing that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Some of you have had the opportunity to meet a really good friend of mine who's a pastor in South Carolina named Patrick Blackman. He's been here a few times to preach at some of our revival services. He's my very best friend in ministry. And Patrick and I, we got started in ministry at the same time. We both were young pastors in the town of Great Falls, South Carolina. He pastored Trinity Baptist. I pastored Second Baptist. And we were about three miles apart. 
And we just began to walk together. We genuinely loved pastoring together, but we were both young, and so we needed a mentor. We needed somebody to walk beside us and to tell us the ins and outs of what it meant to be a pastor. And so Patrick and I, we had the opportunity to meet a rather, uh, how do you say it, affluent, I don't know if that's the right word, influential, that's a better word, a better, uh, rather influential Southern Baptist pastor. As a matter of fact, if I mentioned his name, you would all know who he is, but I, I don't want to do that to him. Uh, but Patrick and I, we had the opportunity to meet this man, and he kind of became our mentor very early on in pastoral ministry. And so Patrick and I, we would go and eat lunch with him. We would go to his home. We would do all these different things, and he would just invest in our lives. One afternoon, Patrick and I, we made our way to his house, and we sat down there in his living room, and we had a rather lengthy conversation about doctrine and theology and all these different things. And we're coming down to the end of our time together, and I'll never forget this moment. Patrick and I are sitting on a couch in his living room. He's seated in a chair just across from us. And just as we're about to leave, he said, let me ask you boys a question. Do you sin? Now, of course, it's one of those questions, Brian, that when somebody asks, you know the answer to, but you can tell by the way they're looking at you that if you answer the way you intend the answer, it's going to be the wrong answer for them. And so me and Patrick, we're kind of hesitant, you know, to answer this question. We're kind of looking back and forth at each other. And we look back at him, and we both at the same time, we said, well, yes, sir, we do. We still sin. And I'll never forget what that pastor said next. He said, really? Because I don't. Now, friends, I can remember when this man told us that he did not sin. The devastation that I felt personally, not because of what he had said, but because of how it made me feel as a young believer in Christ. You see, I began to wonder at that moment, is there something wrong with me? Did I not receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the moment of salvation? Did I miss something? How was it that this man had risen to a level in his walk with Christ to where he had become in, unable to sin, and yet I was still wrestling with it. Now, you may be shocked to hear that a pastor would say that he no longer sinned. However, it shouldn't surprise you at all, considering that there are entire denominations which believe in what is known as the second work of grace. Pentecostals, the Church of the Nazarene, the majority of your holiness churches carry this belief. It comes from the teachings of John Wesley, and it teaches that this alleged second work of grace, this second blessing, is accomplished by the baptism with the Holy Spirit, and it erases one's evil nature and renders one sinlessly perfect and incapable of sinning. In fact, just listen to the official church doctrine from the Church of the Nazarene from 1968. It states, we believe that entire sanctification is that act of God subsequent to regeneration by which believers are made free from original sin or depravity and are brought into a state of entire devotion to God unto the holy obedience of love made perfect. It is wrought by the baptism of the Holy Spirit and comprehends in one's experience the cleansing of the heart from sin, the abiding 
an indwelling experience of the Holy Spirit empowering the believer to life and service. Now, friends, the greatest argument against this second work of grace is the text that we just read from Romans chapter 7, verse 14 through 25. I mean, here is the Apostle Paul remarking on the battle that continues to rage inwardly after his salvation experience on the Damascus Road. And just a brief reading that we took this morning, you can plainly see that the Apostle Paul internally was in a dogfight. He had a desire to do what was right, but there was an inability to actually accomplish it. I'm reminded of the late pastor R.C. Sproul. He was once debating with a 19-year-old man from the holiness movement, and he questioned this 19-year-old man on the validity of the second work of grace when compared to Paul's writing in Romans 7. And he asked the young man if he believed that he had risen to a point of perfect holiness in the inability to sin, to which the 19-year-old man answered, yes, I have. The ability to sin is not in me. Dr. Sproul then read to the young man the words of the Apostle Paul in chapter 7, and he said, do you believe at 19 years old that you have reached a higher level of sanctification than the Apostle Paul had reached when he wrote his great letter to the church at Rome, to which the 19-year-old responded, yes, I am more sanctified at 19 than Paul was when he wrote the book of Romans, to which R.C. Sproul said, well, then what would you say to the Apostle Paul if he were standing here today and the young man said, I would say, Paul, I'm sorry you never made it. <laughs> Friends, there's no wonder why there are so many in these denominations that believe you can lose your salvation. Now, we're going to talk about that beginning next week when we get into Romans chapter number 8, but think about it. If the second work of grace is true and a person rises to a point of personal holiness and the inability to sin, then what happens when they do actually sin? Because we know they ultimately will. Well, one can only conclude that this would either mean the removal of the Holy Spirit prior to the sin or the removal of the Holy Spirit after the sin was committed. Either way, they have fallen from grace and need to be saved again. This is a dangerous doctrine and shows that there's a shallow understanding of covenant theology. It's no wonder that so many of these denominations never rise above the level of spiritual babes in Christ. They're constantly at the starting line and they're always being penalized for false starts since the day they came to Christ. Friends, for a better understanding of salvation, one should not focus on a supposed second work of grace. Rather, you should seek to better understand God's first work of grace, which is sufficient to save to the uttermost and for all eternity. Friends, this is what we've been learning through the book of Romans. The, the intricate details of your salvation, the work of God in us and for us based on the simple formula by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Amen. A proper understanding of Romans 7, 14 through 25 is so important because it teaches us of our constant need for Christ even after salvation. For here is the truth. 
Although we have been saved from sin, the ability to sin is still present with us. Now, do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the freedom to sin remains. Rather, the ability to sin remains. However, for the true believer, although the ability to sin remains, there is no desire. But as we see in Romans 7, although there is no desire, sin still remains. That monster we talked about two weeks ago is still within and will not die as long as we are in this mortal body. There's a battle that is raging inwardly between two kingdoms, the kingdom of the flesh and the kingdom of the spirit. And this battle will only intensify the closer we get to him. How can it not? The closer that we actually get to that which is holy, the more unholy we should feel, which is precisely what we see in the text. As Paul is diving deeper in his faith and growing in grace of his understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he's getting closer and closer to that which is holy, the light of that holiness is only exposing that which was hidden in the dark. Friends, if you are here today and you say that you are saved and yet there is no tension inside of you, there's no conviction, there's no remorse, there's no battle against sin, and if that battle is not intensifying daily, then the only conclusion is that instead of getting closer to holiness, you're actually drifting away from it. You see, the closer that Paul got to Christ, the more sinful he realized he was. And thus, we have this battle that we see before us in Romans chapter number 7. So I want to give you just four observations from the text today. Number one, I want you to see that the gravity of God's holiness is found in his word. The gravity of God's holiness is found in his word. What's he say there in Romans 7, 14? He says, for we know that the law is spiritual. What's he say in Romans 7, 12? He says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Friends, Paul is going to say many things about the law. However, he never speaks negatively about the law as it pertains to the heart of the law or the spirit of the law. Paul only magnifies the law. In fact, at one point, Paul lifts the word of God to the highest possible intellectual plane. He says that the entire book, all scripture, is God-breathed. Now, the other day, Noah, my son, he comes into the living room and he says, Daddy, I want you to watch this video. And he brings in this YouTube video, and this YouTube video is a debate between a Christian and a Satanist. Now, why my son's watching this, I don't know, but he's watching it. And he comes, and he wants to show it to me. And there's a moderator, and the moderator poses this question. And here's the question. Do you believe in a literal hell? And the Christian, of course, he explains his stance on a literal hell. And, and as he's explaining this, the Satanist he, he kind of crosses his legs and he rocks back in his chair and he begins to mock the Christian. And I want you to listen to what he said. He said, if there really is a hell, 
and your God is so loving and so kind, then why wouldn't he give the world a message? I want you to think about that. I wanted to shout through the TV and say, he has given us a message. It's called the Bible. Friends, what you and I hold in our hands is God's revelation of himself to humanity. And although this book does not tell us everything there is to know about God, it tells us everything we need to know about God in order to have a relationship with him. And my dear brother and sister, this is the glory of the gospel that we can actually have a relationship with our creator. We who have been separated from a holy God can actually be reconciled to him. He's not only told us that there is a way, he's shown us the way, the way to have a relationship with him is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, this is why the law of God is so vitally important. For without the law, you and I would never come to see our need for a Savior. You remember this? Two weeks ago, I put this whiteboard right here. We drew the bullseye and said that sin is missing the mark. And at the end of that message, I said that the Word of God that I hold in my hand is a mirror. And the Word of God reveals to us who we truly are. Friends, when we read the law of God, we can only come to the conclusion that God is holy and we are not. And we can also only come to conclude that God demands our holiness. In fact, in Romans 7:10, he says, And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. If we could actually live up to the standard of the law which had been given to us, we would live forever. But guess what? James 2.10 tells us of our inability to actually fulfill that law. James 2.10, if you have broken one law, you've broken them all. And this is why Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Praise God for the law. What does Romans 7.7 say? Romans 7, 7 says, we would have no knowledge of our sinfulness. What does it say? What shall we say? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Friends, without the law, we would sin and sin and sin. Multiple charges would be heaped up against us, but we would have no knowledge that what we were doing is wrong. Therefore, we would stand guilty before a holy God and we would not know it. Now, as a runner, there used to be a park that I would go run in in my hometown of Rock Hill, South Carolina. It's called Cherry Park. And if you're a runner, you understand this. It's kind of like a runner's community. You, you get out, you run every day, and, and as you run, you kind of run into the same people, and you can kind of begin a relationship, a friendship with these folks. And so this one park in my hometown, Cherry Park, is a one-mile loop. And so I would go there a lot of times on my lunch break, and I would run around that park. And there was this one guy that I always saw out there. He was a good bit older than me, but he was in great physical shape. I mean, we were always passing each other and uh, going opposite directions. And, of course, this led to us talking to each other. It's just a great, great guy. But one day I noticed that this guy wasn't in the park anymore. And then another day went by, and another day went by. 
until I finally asked somebody what happened to this certain individual. And they informed me that he had passed away suddenly in his sleep. I said, what happened? And they said, well, the autopsy revealed that his entire body was eaten up with cancer, but he had no idea. Can you imagine having a disease eating away at your organs, killing you from the inside, but have no idea that it was actually happening? Friends, this is what is happening when one doesn't know the law of God. They're going about their life seemingly fine, no care in the world, no knowledge that they are dead men walking in their iniquity. And unless someone shouts it from the street corners, unless somebody shouts it from the rooftops, unless somebody goes to the highways and the hedges, they will suddenly wake up in a lake of fire having never come to the knowledge of truth. This is why the law is so vitally important. It reveals to us the gravity of God's holiness and our sinfulness and our desperate need for him. Remember, the law is not sinful. We are. The law is not bad. The law is good. The law is for our benefit because it points us to our greatest need. And what is our greatest need? Our greatest need is a Savior. A Savior who will come and fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. A Savior who will not only come and fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, but who will also pay the debt that we owe for breaking God's law. The debt being death. Friends, such a Savior has come. His name is Jesus. The very same Jesus that Paul at one time willed to destroy is now the very same Jesus that he declares can save you from your sin through his vicarious death on Calvary's cross. This is why he says in 2 Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a Savior indeed. Friends, there's no other like him. He paid your penalty and proved that the penalty that he paid was sufficient by resurrecting from the dead three days later. This is the Savior that I declare to you, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Have you actually given your life to him? Have you been forgiven and reconciled to a holy God? Now, many of you have made this commitment. And if you've made this commitment, you can certainly resonate with what Paul is saying in verse 15 through verse number 20, which leads to this second observation, this grueling struggle against sin, this grueling struggle, this battle against sin. I'm reminded of the pastor who once had an individual come into his office, and he said to him, Pastor, I just feel like there's this, there's this battle going on inside of me between two dogs. And I feel like these dogs are just tearing at each other and at war with one another. And it makes me miserable. And the pastor said, well, which dog wins? And he said, whichever dog I feed the most. But friends, what we see in Romans 6 and 7 is greater in degree than two dogs at war within you. 
You see, what we see in Romans 7 is that actually inside each and every person under the sound of my voice right now, there are two kingdoms at war. On the one hand, you have the kingdom of the flesh ruled by that old tyrant known as sin. And although he's been crucified and no longer has any power, he longs once again to sit upon the throne of your heart. This is why Paul writes in Romans 6, verse 12 through 14, he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign. By reigning, he means sit upon the throne. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. On the one hand, you have the flesh and that old tyrant known as sin, but on the other hand, you have a new master. On the other hand, you have a new kingdom. His reign begins the day you gave your life to Christ, and now the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. And now because of the Holy Spirit reigning in your life, you have all the ability and all the power to overcome sin. Romans 6, 22. But now having been freed from sin, you became enslaved to God and derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Friends, we know that what Paul is dealing with here in Romans 7, 15 or 14 through 25 is true of the believer because of the personal nature in which he writes. He uses the word I multiple times. He also uses words in the present tense, words like doing and practicing and confessing. This is certainly the life of a believer. The evidence is overwhelming. Paul is giving us a personal testimony. Now just go back to what we looked at two weeks ago, verse 7 through 11, and listen to what he wrote there. He said, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in death for me, or life for me, proved to result in death. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. In these verses, what Paul is teaching us is that before salvation, he had no knowledge that his actions were sinful. He was just going on about his life, oblivious to his true condition. Yet sin reigned, just as it reigns in all people. Friends, right now, there are 8.3 billion people alive on earth. And everybody falls into one of two categories. Either sin at one time reigned, but no longer reigns because you've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, or sin is currently reigning in your life. But do you know what happens? For those who sin is currently reigning, they just keep right on going. 
People ask the question, why do lost people do what they do? It's because they are oblivious to the true nature of their crimes against God. They sin. There's no remorse. There's no grief. There's no guilt. There's no shame. They wake up tomorrow and they do it all again. Now, I'm not saying that they aren't miserable. And I'm not saying that there's not an emptiness inside, but they can't pinpoint why they're miserable. And they can't pinpoint why they're empty aside from the law of God and the gospel of Christ being revealed to them. You see, you probably remember a time in your life when this was how you were. By nature, like an unreasoning animal, you just did sinful things and you never thought twice about it. I don't know about you, but when I look back across my life and think about some of the things that I used to do, I think, how could I ever do that? How could I ever make that decision? But in all honesty, friends, it's surprising to me that I didn't do worse. Considering that at that moment, I had no understanding toward the law of God and toward sin, toward the gospel of Christ. Now, this is in no way saying today that we advocate for sin or that we're, we're saying that you should go on sinning because Paul says, may it never be. Here's the thing. Paul in Romans 7, he saved. So guess what that means? The light of illumination now shines brightly upon his life. And as he says, Sin is now producing in him sin of every kind. Listen to what one writer said. He said, how little humanity realizes this awful universal fact about man, sold under sin. Sold under sin is exactly what the new convert does not know. Forgiven, justified, he knows himself to be, and he has the joy of it, but now to find an evil nature of which he had never become really conscious and of which he thought himself to be fully rid when he first believed. This is a second lesson which is often more bitter than the first lesson of guilt. Now we see, don't we, the war against sin truly only begins when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, before salvation, what did Paul say in Romans 7, 9, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came to life, sin became alive and I died. I'm reminded of a couple years ago being in Zambia. And I was there and I was staying in this little village and there was all these huts around. And this one afternoon, I can remember this so vividly, there was a mama there in that little village and she had a a baby, and when I say a baby, I mean probably around 18 months of age, uh, enough to kind of toddle around and communicate, but not a newborn. And I can remember this one day so plainly because this mama was sitting outside, and for hours we heard this baby crying. And nobody knew why the baby was crying, but it just went on and on for hours. And the mama did everything she could to get this baby to stop crying. But no matter what she did, the baby would not stop. And so after all her efforts had, 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 had been given, she finally stands up from where she was seated and she turns around. And when she turns around, there was a king cobra standing up, ready to bite her and her baby. 
And what do you think that mama did? That mama went to war against the cobra. But when she went to war against the cobra, guess what the cobra did? The cobra went to war with her. He wasn't going to go down without a fight. In fact, the cobra fought all the more. Before, he was coiled. He was behind her. He was ready to strike. He was ready to deliver the death blow. But now that he'd been seen, his hissing and his strikes became more vicious than before. Friends, this is precisely what we see in the text. Now that sin has been discovered, now that sin has been uncovered, sin begins to fight all the more. Listen to the reading of the text. Listen to the tension inside of Paul beginning in verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. You can almost see Paul just kind of putting his head down and scratching his head and saying, why? Why do I do the things that I do? Why do I keep doing things that are wrong? What does he say? For I'm not practicing. That's present tense. What I would like to do, what would he like to do? Well, he would like to live a life of holiness. He would like to live a life no longer caught in the snares of sin. But I'm doing the very things that I hate. Some of you are Romans 7:15 Christians. This is where you live. You don't understand it. You know it's wrong, but you keep on doing it anyway, and you hate it. Verse 16, I agree with the law, he says. If I do the very thing I do not want, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good, that, that guilt, that conviction that comes from falling into sin, it only proves that the law is good because you know the things you're doing are wrong. You know that God's righteous standards are good for you, yet you're going against them. Verse 17, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now listen to me, friends. This is not Paul making an excuse as to say, well, when I do wrong, there's this overpowering force that I have no ability to control. And so he makes me sin. Remember, James said that we are drawn away and enticed by our own evil desires. Temptation comes, and all of us, in our own volitional will, we choose to sin. But for Paul, this is further proof of his own sinfulness. Sin which by nature dwells in us from the moment of birth. That old man, that old nature, that flesh, it desires to be pleased. Verse 18 for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present, but the good is not. The willing being present in him, that's his pursuance of holiness. Meaning that Paul's eyes are locked on Christ. But the more he pursues Christ, the more willing he becomes to be a vessel for his honor. Guess what? the revelation of sin only becomes more evident. Paul is getting closer, but sin is fighting all the more. That cobra is hissing and fighting and striking at him all the time. 
Verse 19, for the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. You can feel this heartache, this tension, this grief in his voice as he sounds like he's defeated. And then in verse 20, he says, but if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Do you notice what he said? Dwells in me, present tense. No second work of grace here. Paul doesn't say that the ability to sin used to dwell in me. He's not risen to a point of holiness in his life where sin is forever absent. Friends, that day will come. But that will only come when you see Jesus face to face and you're glorified in his presence. As long as Paul is here and as long as you are here, sin will dwell in you and sin will seek to ensnare you and sin will do all it can to keep on living. See, friends, these verses have awakened something me in this week. When I feel good about myself, when I begin to think that I have arrived, when I begin to think that I've actually overcome sin and overcome temptation, it's then that I better check myself. Because here's the truth. If I'm pursuing Christ and if I'm pursuing holiness, it will awaken sin and I'm going to have a fight on my hands. There's a grueling battle that rages inwardly. Now listen to this egregious verdict which is rendered, this shocking admission, one that stuns us. For after all, this is the Apostle Paul. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament and he's in this war. He's in this battle. Listen to verse 21. I find the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. I mean, you can almost feel his grief here, can't you? Loop it all the way back to verse 15. Why? Why am I doing these things? Verse 22, 23, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, the law of the mind, the law of God. This is a law he agrees with, but what does he say? But I see a different law in the members of my body. Mentally, he ascended to the law of God. Mentally, he heard the Holy Spirit's voice within, prompting him to abstain from sin. There was always a pull of righteousness. But what he observed is there was an equal pull to do that which was evil, to do the things that he hated. Now, friends, do not think for one moment that this is Paul's stamp of approval upon sin. As if to say, well, if Paul's the great apostle, and I mean God used him in the midst of his sin, and if God can use him, he can use me. And if he didn't lose his salvation, then I won't lose mine either. I'm okay. Don't let this become a temptation to go and sin more because, friends, this is exactly what sin does. 
Sin takes a text like this that is meant to help you overcome sin, and sin says, well, if Paul can do it, so can you. Do you see the subtle and the cunning nature of sin? It takes the law, it takes the word, which is good, and then tries to convince you that somehow you can actually go on living because it's warranted in the text. Always go back to Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Can we continue in sin? Absolutely not. How can we who have died to sin go on living in it? This text is in no way, shape, or form giving you the authority to go on sinning. It's anything but. Listen to his conclusion. Wretched man that I am. Miserable, pitiful, poor, blind, naked, a miserable state. It's like that, that old Indian chief who, who one time a, a gospel preacher came and shared with him all these things about Christ and the preacher was nervous that maybe the man didn't understand he said, sir, do you understand what I'm saying to you? And the old Indian chief went over to a pile of leaves and moved them all away and found an earthworm. And he took the worm and he threw it into the fire. And just as the flames were about to consume the worm, he reached in and he pulled the worm out. And he said, me, that worm. I mean, this is shocking to hear the apostle Paul, this child of God, this mighty man, this mighty theologian say, wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? I don't know about you, friends, but I get weary sometimes. Man, the flesh is strong, is it not? And there's so many times I just want to go on home. I tell Summer at least once a week, this world has nothing for me. I don't want to be here anymore. I just want to go home. I just want to be with Jesus. I want to leave sin behind, and I want to be glorified. And, and in his presence, who will rescue me from this body of death? Observe number four, the grace of God. Not a second work of grace, but a continual work of grace. Friends, we all love to sing about amazing grace, the grace that saved us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. We love to sing that. We love to sing about God's grace, which will endure for all eternity. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. But for some reason, when we sing the third verse, we just kind of get down on this law as if it's not as important. But friends, I would say that that third verse of amazing grace may be the most important. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will bring me home. We rarely sing about God's enduring grace. The same grace which saves it's the same grace that keeps. Thanks be unto God, to God and to God alone, no other. What a moment of praise this is 
for Paul. He evaluates his circumstance. He evaluates his condition. He knows his sin. And what does he say? Thanks be unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, I think back about that cobra and that mama. And she got up and she grabbed a broom and she went after that cobra. She was doing all she could to kill it. And that cobra became more and more violent. But out of a hut came a man with a machete. And he ran across that village. And from behind the cobra, he cut off its head. And you know what that mama did? She didn't just walk back in her hut. She fell on her knees and she said, thank you, sir, for saving my life for saving my baby's life. We owe our life to you. That's what Paul is doing. Don't be like the nine lepers who walked on to the city. Be the one leper that comes back and says, thanks be unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Not only did he save us, he sustains us. Not only did he intervene in our life, he continues to guard us. Not only did he search for us, but he, now he abides in us. Not only did he shed his precious blood, but he covers us with his blood. Thanks be unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, this is the key to victorious Christian living. It's clinging to Christ. It's acknowledging that in your own power, you cannot overcome sin. That monster that we talked about, that tyrant, is just too strong. But through Christ, and only through Christ, you can overcome sin. It's not a second blessing that renders you incapable. No, the moment of salvation, you receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. His work, his power is now evident in you. So why do you keep on sinning? Well, the only answer can be, that you're not tapping into the power that God has given you. I close with the words of A.W. Pink. He said, where shall we go to find a Christian of superior attainments to those of the Apostle Paul? And what was his experience? Read Romans 7 and see. When he would do good, evil was present with him. There was a law in his members warring against the law of his mind and bring him into captivity to the law of sin. He did with the mind serve the law of God. Nevertheless, with the flesh, he served the law of sin. Ah, Christian, the truth is one of the most conclusive evidences that we do possess a pure heart is to be conscious of and burdened with the impurity which still indwells us. Heads bowed and eyes closed, the monster still within. Sin is always present with us, dear friend. It never leaves as long as we're in this body of death. But we can overcome through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll give you a twofold invitation today. We won't be long. Brother Caleb just prepared one verse for us. We won't be very long. But if you're here today and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, invite you to just worship. Maybe for the first time today, you would say, thanks be unto God. Maybe you've just forgotten all Jesus did for you. But today, you would just say glory, glory to God alone. And you would just praise him for his work. That's where I'm at today. 
Thanks be unto God. But maybe, maybe today you're here and you've never given your life to Christ. And today you want to be saved. Today for the very first time you've heard the gospel presented and you know that you need Jesus in your life. Only he can rescue you from this dying body. And I'm just wondering if anybody today would want to give their life to Christ. Say, Pastor, today is the day that I need to be saved. Would you just raise your hand? Anybody at all need to be saved today? Anybody at all? I got you back there in the back. I'll talk to you in just a minute, okay? now, Andrew and Frankie. Y'all give Andrew and Frankie a big hand this morning. <laughs> Two young men who have come to give their life to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. What a, what, a, what a blessing this is, right? I mean, this is amazing. Just, just two weeks ago, we're dedicating your baby. And Andrew stood on stage with us. And now look at him giving his heart to Christ. Tobias is a new believer, just recently started bringing his little brothers to church once he got saved. And now look at this. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, just look at their that's it. Just look at their faces. They're so happy this morning. Uh, Andrew and Frankie, we're so grateful today that you've given your life to Christ. I'm going to talk to you a little bit after the service, okay? We saw one more in the back that wanted to be saved. We'll be talking to him here in just a moment. Friends, listen, we want to glorify God for what he's done today. We're going to sing one verse of, Lord, I need you. If you need to be saved, you come to the front at this time. This is your hymn of invitation. You come. Praise God for these two young men, and we're going to be uh, celebrating with them and getting them baptized. They're going to be right here at the front at the end of the service. I want you to come hug their necks, okay, and tell them how thankful you are for them giving their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Listen.
Praise God for Justin and Shannon. Here's how you can help them. They're our new youth minister and his wife. But we don't know when they're going to start. You know why? Because they don't have a place to live. And they live seven hours away. And they need a house. And so if somebody here you might know of somewhere or you might have a rental property or something where you can help them. I got a hand up there in the top. Um, I see that hand. I had to do it. I'm sorry. Uh, but, but we... Um, Oh, boy. <laughs> I digress. Listen, JJ's up there. JJ raised his hand, so JJ, you get with them, okay? And anybody else that might have something, just come talk with them and uh, let them know so they can try to find a place so they can get down here. They can b begin their work uh, with our students. Um, listen, also, uh, we had two deaths this week. Um, on this weekend, number one, Miss Angela Halstead. Uh, what a sweet lady. You know Breeze, our children's director. This is her grandmother. And uh, Miss Gina Tipton, who comes, this is her mother. Miss Sandy, who's here, this is her sister. And we love Miss Angie, and we are so devastated by her loss. Um, her service will be here at the church on Tuesday afternoon. Also, Josh Westmoreland, who's one of our deacons, his father passed away on Friday as well. And uh, his service will be on Wednesday. So please remember Josh in your prayers. Also, you, many of you know the Gazaway family. And we've been praying for Nick Gazaway for some time because of a lung transplant. He's had some complications, and Nick is now in a coma um, fighting for his life. So please pray for Nick Gazaway as well. If you'd like to give to Flat Creek, you can give online at flatcreekchurch.net, or you can always give on your way out the door. Come and celebrate with those who gave their life to Christ today. And Brother Caleb is going to pray as we uh, close our service this morning. Lord, thank you for the opportunity just to gather together and worship. Lord, thank you for being uh, such a mighty God, such a good God, and especially such a holy God. Lord, thank you for being worthy of all the worship we can bring. And Lord, I pray that as we go our separate ways, uh, we would take this challenge that Pastor Zach has issued to us. We would strive for holiness with every, uh, every ounce of energy we have. Lord, keep us safe as we go uh, and bring us back Wednesday and next Sunday as well so we can worship with our church family again soon. We love you. We thank you for all your many blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Sunday stream here at Flat Creek Baptist Church in Gainesville, Georgia. I am Pastor Zach Williams, and it is a great honor to have you join us through our online platform. It is our belief here at Flat Creek Baptist that you should be connected to a local congregation. And so if you are in the Gainesville, Georgia area, we want to encourage you to come out and be a part of what God is doing in our midst. There's nothing like being connected to a local body of believers. However, if you are tuning in today and you are not from the Gainesville, Georgia area and you're tuning in from some other place on earth, what we're going to encourage you to do is get attached to a local body of believers under good, sound, biblical, doctrinal preaching so that you can be encouraged in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and allow Flat Creek Baptist and our Sunday stream to just be a supplement to what God is doing in your life. Friends, I thank you so much once again for joining us. God bless you. And for more information, you can visit our website, flatcreekchurch.com.
favorite southern gospel music 97.5 glory fm Seven five Glory FM, your family radio station in North Georgia.